Money Talk is hosted by Annex Wealth Management, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Important information about the qualifications and business practices of Annex is available at AnnexWealth.com. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk. Please consult with a qualified fiduciary advisor about your specific situation. Welcome to Money Talk, the longest-running weekly personal finance radio show in Wisconsin. Annex Wealth Management is a proud member of the Barron's Top Advisor List and the Financial Times Top 300 List know the difference now here are your hosts dave spano and mark oswald welcome everybody it's money talk annex wealth management saturday july 27th we'll speak loud because we have probably have planes overhead yeah, you, get, you know this weekend it's that air show and finally we had a decent weather yeah for sure my uh my daughter works down on the river and, and she said that they were practicing the other day and she said they come over pretty <laughs> i mean you you know it when they come into the into your area for yep. sure Team Tech Trust is how we roll at Annex Wealth Management, website AnnexWealth.com. Welcome to the show. I'm Danny Clayton. Mark Oswald is here and Derek Felski. And let's get going with that Week in Review. Yeah, for sure. We always want to start the, the show with a little Week in Review and talk about what happened this week as it relates to why things are going on in the market, Derek. And certainly when you start to look at the S&P 500 right now, another record high on Friday, and you start to think about what's causing those markets to continue to go forward. I think the big number Friday was the GDP. GDP number, the measurement of the growth of the economy, came in higher than expected. And I think the question then becomes, for this week in review, what does that mean for the Fed next week? Well, basically what it means is we're in a Goldilocks economy. We're, we're growing the economy at a, a decent rate, 2.1%, as you mentioned, in the most recent quarter. Uh, that's slowing somewhat from the first quarter, so that clearly gives the Fed some reason to cut rates and, and get that yield curve into a more upward sloping trajectory, which is something they're aiming to do. So right now, the, the Fed Fund futures markets is looking for about 100% probability of a rate cut next week, and also about a 25% chance of a 50 basis point rate cut, which would, I think, surprise the markets. When you start thinking about GDP, you're thinking about the growth of the economy. A lot of times we talk on the show about the consumer being 70% of GDP, so consumer spending. So are people feeling confident about their job, about their paycheck? Are they spending money on durable goods? Are they spending money at McDonald's and Starbucks, two companies that reported their earnings this week? Those are things you can look at and say the health of the economy seems to be pretty strong. Manufacturing lagging a little bit, but the consumer has been strong. And you start to think about why does that result in a Fed rate cut coming up probably at the end of next week. The Fed has, you know, a dual mandate, right? Price stability and full employment. We certainly are at full employment with the unemployment rate below 4%, but inflation is running below target. Their target is 2%. It's running at about 1.5%. And that's not just true in the United States. It's also true in Japan and Europe. So inflation has been very moderate. So in, in that environment, with growth slowing, not just here, but also more dramatically overseas, the Fed is really just trying to recalibrate and basically take back what looks like a mistake when they hike breaks in December. So Larry Kudlow had something to say about it on Friday morning, and he, he talked about the fact that there may have been some extreme tightening going on in the markets prior to what's, what's going on now in this this administration. Probably not. I mean, there was a normalization of rates that was going on. You know, a rate cut right now would put money back into the economy, correct that yield curve a little bit that's been a problem. You mentioned the ECB and some of the foreign debt that's going on right now. Those would be things that the Fed may be trying to attack. 
by basically trying to steepen the yield curve and, and take it out of an inversion, what they're really trying to do is encourage banks to lend money. Because basically when the yield curve is inverted, banks are borrowing at the short end of the yield curve and lending at the longer end of the yield curve. And they're not going to lend if the rate they're receiving is less than the rate they're paying. And, and by basically forcing short-term rates down, the Fed is accomplishing that mission. In addition, the ECB this week announced that they intend to re-energize their QE program in September. There will be more details then. And that could also push rates on the longer end of our yield curve back down. So the Fed is trying to get ahead of that and, and fight what is basically a slowdown in global growth. The other thing, of course, this week is we had a lot of companies that reported earnings. Just talk about earnings in general. We can talk about some individual companies in the next segment, but just earnings in general, both from a top-line standpoint and a bottom-line standpoint. A lot of people had expected earnings to be in a recession. I use the R word, and by that I mean earnings being less than they were last year on a comparable basis. It doesn't mean an economic recession, but when you start thinking about earnings, how how has it been as a whole? It's been okay. It's been mixed. Basically, the theme that that's come out of it is companies that are exposed to the uncertainties related to trade have generally posted mediocre results, but companies, as you mentioned, like Starbucks and McDonald's that are exposed to the consumers doing well with rising wages and low unemployment, uh, those companies have tended to do very well. And certainly within the tech sector, the behemoths continue to do well as, as well. So when you start thinking about the consumer, we talked about GDP and the consumer spending. Consumers are spending at McDonald's and Starbucks, and, and, and when you look at companies like Caterpillar, or 3M, there's such a small part of the U.S. economy these days that don't look at that as being a real drag on GDP, even when those companies don't report great earnings. They're, they're not huge individually, but for example, the, the, the situation with Boeing, where basically Southwest is now pulled out of Newark, where they were flying 35 flights with that 737 MAX plane and had ordered many more. They're now moving their, their operations to LaGuardia. And basically what's, what, what's going on with Boeing is there's a potential they may halt production of that plane. That alone could take half a percent out of GDP. So some of these companies obviously matter more than others. But directionally, the stronger dollar, the trade uncertainties certainly hurt multinationals that are exposed to trade. Dirk Felsky, Chief Investment Officer at Annex Wealth Management. This is Money Talk, our website, AnnexWealth.com. We always talk about the Get Started button. That's how you begin the process to get that uh, free portfolio analysis. How about this? It's even easier. All you have to do is text two words get started to our main number at 262-786-6363 and we'll get you going that easy just text get started 262-786-6363 this is money talk annex wealth management wtmj custom tailored investment and retirement planning from a fee-only fiduciary know the difference this is money talk on wtmj and we're back. It's Money Talk, Annex Wealth Management, website, AnnexWealth.com. I'm Danny Clayton. Mark Oswald is here and Derek Felsky. Derek is our chief investment officer. Four times a year, you get to kind of revel in earnings reports as they come in. Do you enjoy it? What, what do you see? What do you like to see? Well, I, I do enjoy it because it really is a recalibration of the thinking of our investment committee and the various members of our team, not just on individual names, but also in terms of tactical exposure. So, for example, when I, when I approach earnings season, I, I look mostly for companies that actually miss because typically companies like to underpromise and overdeliver. And if they miss, there may or may not be something going on in that industry or that company specifically that warrants further review. 
Well, you know, Derek, I, I look at it a little differently, and, and it's not so much the hard numbers to me. I start to look at companies and individual names. Money talk, we don't necessarily recommend stocks or, or individual things to buy. We talk about these companies as a way of looking at sectors or trends or, or the economy as a whole. But that's where I think the numbers are really interesting to me because you look at technology, for instance, and you start thinking about Amazon you mentioned. You know, Is Amazon a tech company? Is it a retail company? And, and how does that fit into the consumer? What does that mean for the big boxes, Kohl's and Macy's and Nordstrom's and all that. So that's why it's really interesting to me because I think it does then start to guide you into the tactical decisions that you make in our investment committee of where you want to be overweight and what you want to stay away from. That's absolutely true. And as you've often said, it's not just what you own, it's what you don't own. I mean, many times I think we add more value not owning things than we do necessarily owning things. Because typically what we own is fairly liquid, fairly well researched. So we have to do a really good job on a tactical basis to add alpha in our portfolios. So we talked a little bit about some of the big names, 3M and McDonald's and Starbucks and Caterpillar in the first segment. There were a couple of other ones, Amazon and, and Alphabet, two of the big, big companies, you know, well-capitalized, trillion-dollar capital companies, when you start thinking about those companies and the impact they have on broad indexes, people listening out there this morning are going to say, well, I don't own Amazon or I don't own Apple. Well, you better look at your mutual fund because you probably do. Oh, absolutely. And if you own an index fund, you do for sure. The one report, I guess, that struck me the most was most surprising that we saw on Friday in particular was Alphabet, formerly known as Google, reported they announced a $25 billion buyback. Their quarterly sales grew 20%. They're doing extremely well um, in ad sales and the like. And while they are under increased regulatory scrutiny in Washington, they continue to print cash. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, the companies like Amazon and Alphabet and, and Microsoft have, have done so well, because in this period of sluggish growth, companies that are growing at a rate much faster than the S&P 500 are being rewarded. Well, you think about companies like that, and Facebook, I think it was this, we paid $5 billion for antitrust types of claims against the company. They looked in the uh, uh, couch cushions and they exactly. found it, right? Well, they, and that's my point, is it's become the cost of doing business for some of these companies. When The numbers, the law of numbers have gotten so huge that the earnings numbers that we're talking about, you can't talk about it on a per-share basis. If you're talking in real dollars, you're talking about billions of dollars of profit every 90 days. And what these companies are doing with it, you mentioned buybacks. Think about that from the standpoint of taking $25 billion of stock, your own stock, out of the market, and what that means for earnings going forwards on a per-share basis. Yeah, we did an analysis of the Dow not that long ago, and 10% of the shares in the Dow Jones Industrial Average have been retired over the last five years. So that just creates a scarcity premium that these stock buybacks have helped to fuel. The other side of the shoe, right? I mean, we're at all-time highs on the S&P 500. Are we too high? That, that's a complicated question. You know, the fundamentals certainly are, are supportive, but we have had a strong advance in equities up almost 22% for the year, while earnings have basically gone sideways. So the multiple on, that people are willing to pay for stocks has risen. In fact, this past week, both Goldman and Morgan Stanley issued cautionary notes suggesting that uh, there will be headwinds in the second half. It'll be hard to maintain this type of growth from a stock appreciation perspective, particularly as long as that trade uncertainty exists. You know, that's probably a better answer than the 
one I give, which is if you don't know the answer for, to that question for yourself, it's time to look at your portfolio and maybe rebalance. Take some of the gains off and start thinking about getting a portfolio review. If you've not done that, if you're a do-it-yourselfer, if you want to have that pre free examination of your portfolio done, when the markets get to all-time highs, there's a great opportunity to book some gains do it tactically so that you end up with the portfolio you want to have that fits your risk profile. You do it with tax efficiency in mind. We can help you do that if you're interested. Now would be a great time to have that portfolio review. Like right now at 1022, you can go to AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. It takes just a couple of minutes, and we'll get you going next week. Again, AnnexWealth.com. This is Money Talk WTMJ. Planning and investment insight from a fee-only fiduciary. And we put that in writing. You're listening to Money Talk on WTMJ. Know the difference? It's Team Tech Trust. Mandy Nowashinsky is a CFP and a tax planner, and she heads our tax team at Annex Wealth Management. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. How are your little boys in the summer doing? Oh, gosh. As they would say, they're sweaty. <laughs> they're sweaty. I'm just going to tease you here, but it's not tax season, so you must not be very busy. Well, tax season is kind of what I think of as like a compliance season. That's just filing. We do tax planning all year long, and that's kind of where we kind of plan and make sure come tax time there are no surprises, kind of get you in a good position during the year. For sure. Let's talk about the gig economy or the side hustle or that part-time extra job. There, there are ways that people use their time and their talent, and they earn extra money with the extra income comes the responsibility to report that to the IRS. You know, yeah, there's cash, but for the purpose of this segment, let's talk about wages you report on your income tax. First category for tax purposes is the sole proprietor. That covers most everybody's side hustle. Is that right? That is true. Most people, if they're doing a side hustle, that's really just a part-time thing. A lot of people would say that's kind of a hobby that they might get paid for. So a lot of times you're just getting a couple hundred bucks, maybe a thousand dollars, you know, and in that example, you kind of just do your business, and you report it on what we call a Schedule C of your tax return. You don't register. You kind of just get the money, track your expenses as applicable, and kind of just report that net income on your tax return and get taxed as a sole proprietor. And that money can come from different sources, right? Some people could Venmo it. Some people mm -hmm. could write personal checks. Or somebody would be referred to as a 1099 employee. Is that it? That's it. And the big difference between a 1099 and a W-2 employee is who pays the taxes, most likely the um, withholding and the FICA. So that self-employment income tax, Medicare, and Social Security. As a 1099 employee, you're responsible for that rather than the employer. And that's where people get socked when they have a side hustle. Yes. They don't accrue for that. That is true. One I've been seeing a lot is um, Uber, rideshare. People have been getting a lot of, you know, kind of just side hustle, picking up income and doing that. So they'll get kind of surprised at the end of the day about how much they made and the tax they got to pay on that. Got it. Now, I've read that unless that side hustle produces like, what is it, thirty, forty thousand $40,000 in annual income, there are no benefits uh, to moving beyond a sole proprietor. Do you, you see it the same way? Yeah, and I think what they're referring to there is maybe more advanced tax planning, such as becoming an S corporation um, and filing additional taxes. You know, another thing you know that we talk about a lot is LLC, and when does when does that come into play? In fact, that was next. The LLC, that limited liability company. Exactly, what is that? From a tax standpoint, 
there is most likely not going to be any changes for a sole proprietor with an LLC. You'll still be taxed the same. You'll still be taxed as a Schedule C. Now, it allows for more tax planning flexibility in the future. Um, You can become a different type of organization when you're an LLC. But really what an LLC is, is just liability protection for that sole proprietor. Kind of thinking of it as putting um, a liability wrapper around your business. And that's really all that LLC adds at that lower level. Once you start making more money with an LLC, you become an S corporation, a C corporation. You can start changing your structure. Okay, so an LLC is cheap, right? Oh, it's cheap. You just register with the state of Wisconsin, file your annual report every year, make sure you keep up on that so your LLC is valid. And it offers protection for that personal assets. Why wouldn't a sole proprietor just do it if it's cheap and and it offers the protection? That usually is if they're just doing a couple hundred or thousand, they're going to forget. A lot of times people forget to file that annual report with the state of Wisconsin. A lot of people do hire an attorney to form the LLC because you do have to have articles of organization. So you have to have some sort of legal document kind of saying how that LLC will operate. So there are some fees establishing it, but the ongoing fees are minimal. If somebody's grown a side hustle or part-time job into something larger than the LLC, that's the S-Corp. That's different, right? Do you deal with that much? Yes, we do a lot of planning. That's kind of where you would see the business owners because what you have to do with an S-Corp that's different than an LLC is payroll. You have to pay yourself something with being an owner of an S-Corporation because you're still doing work. Um, so that you have to now do payroll, and a lot of people get a little nervous when having to start doing payroll for themselves or for other people. Each step, it sounds like there's a little bit more paperwork involved, a little bit more time, a little bit more complexity. Absolutely. And with an S corporation, you've got to file another tax return. With an LLC or sole proprietor, those can be flow through entities on just your tax return. So you don't have to file a separate tax return to then flow it back to yourself. The great thing is, is that Annex Wealth Management has clients who fall into every single one of these categories, we right? We do. So we can do planning for any sort of business owner and we can help provide guidance as to what is the best structure for you and we can talk to you about that LLC. One of the most common questions we get with an LLC is real estate. Should my rental property be in an LLC? And that is not as easy of an answer to provide as one would think. There's a lot of complexities that come into play when moving a rental property into an LLC. So the answer sometimes is it depends. It depends with a lot of things. It depends. That's why we work with our clients to get to know their individual situation a little better to see what is the best solution for them. Fantastic. Mandy Nowashinsky, tax planner, Annex Wealth Management. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. She is part of the team and you can join the team as well. It's easy. Just go to AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. It is 1030 on Money Talk on WTMJ. The longest running weekly personal finance radio show in Wisconsin. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Time for Ask Annex. If you've got a question, you can always drop one in. AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Ask button. Our first one comes from Dave. The market is up, but the earnings are going sideways. Economic growth seems to be slowing. What's the risk of a crash? That's a scary word, crash, isn't it? Well, it certainly is for most people. It's an interesting question. I think it really reflects a lot of what people are thinking in terms of the market being at all-time highs, Derek, and you start to see things like this fear and greed thing that we look at from time to time, and that's kind of a, a good barometer of where people are thinking. Right. I mean, the fear and greed index right now is at 56, which is not an excessive level. It got to 70 several months ago. Uh, the way I would address a question like that is, you know, corrections are normal. That's a 10% pullback. They happen, you know, every, every, you know, once or twice a year. And those are typically opportunities. But in terms of trying to evaluate 
possibility of a crash, you have to look at things like the valuation of asset classes. So, for example, right now, Mark, with interest rates at such low levels, if you build a dividend discount model, you actually find that the stock market is fairly cheap on a historical basis. It was trading at, I think, at the peak in 2000, we were trading at 30 times earnings, but interest rates were at 6%. Right now, we're trading at 18 times earnings. Interest rates are at 2 so we're nowhere near the levels we reached at the peak of the tech bubble in early 2000. Next question is from Julian. Three words. What is beta? I mean, I love this kind of stuff. This is statistics, and I won't go into the, the gory details, but basically what beta is, it's a measure of the volatility of an asset or a stock in a portfolio relative to the overall market. So, for example, the market has a beta of one. A volatile stock might have a beta of two. A consumer staple stock may have a beta of 0.5. So basically what, why this is important is during a bull market, high beta stocks outperform. But they are riskier because they have more volatility inherent in them. And the reason this is important is like when we evaluate a mutual fund, Mark, we're, one of the th key things we look at is upside-downside capture ratio. We don't want to own a mutual fund that is just heavily weighted in high beta stocks. Is yeah, it'll do great on the upside, but also do horrible on the downside. Yeah. So the way I look at it, Derek, you know, when I think about beta in more simple terms, for me at least, if the market is a beta of one and you're looking at an issue, a stock that has a beta of one point five, it's fifty percent more volatile than the the index itself. If you're looking at something that has a beta of a point five, as you pointed out, it's half as volatile as the index itself. So you want to measure that out. You're getting the upside but you're not getting the, the full ride sometimes of the entire market. The, the other thing people do, too, though, with beta is they assume that high-priced stocks are inherently more volatile. They're mm -hmm. not focusing on percentage change. So, for example, most people would be surprised to know that the beta of Apple is only 0.6. So Apple's a less volatile stock than the S&P 500, which means it won't go up as much on the upside, but it also won't go down as much on the downside. Ask Annex. Our next question is from Joan. Planning question mark. Is there a limit to how many times I can make adjustments to my retirement plan? Well, th this is a rules question, and there's no rule against it, per se. I mean, the IRS doesn't say, you know, you get 12 changes a year or something like that. You can make as many changes as your plan will allow, and that's where you really need to look at your employer because think about it. You know, your 401K plan, when it trades those mutual funds, there are trading costs. They're paying some of those costs, so the plan itself is incurring some costs, and so it's going to put a limit on the number of trades that it's going to let you make. So you want to talk to your employer. For a lot of people, Trading in your 401k is, is you know, it's, it's tantamount to day trading because you're trying to get in and out of different sectors. Now, I know that I did a, a, some research on this at one point in time, and about 85%, 85 to 90% of people who are in their 401k make no trades in their plan in a given year. That's the other dangerous side of it is this idea, Derek, of set it and forget it. So people should be looking at their 401k. We do that for our clients, even when we don't take those assets into our custody and discretion, is we'll look at your plan assets even when you're still working and saying, given these choices, this is what we think your allocation should be. Again, with the markets at an all-time high, that wouldn't be a bad time to come in and sit down with somebody and say, what should I be doing? And sometimes my most valuable asset, my 401k plan, so that I know what to do and when to reallocate. So long answer, Joan, but you can make as many trades as you want, but be smart about it, be tactical about it, and work with an advisor, get some good advice. Uh, we do that for our clients. We can do that for you. You can get started today.
today. Yep, you can do it. Go to AnnexWealth.com. Click that Get Started button. Offices in Elm Grove, Mequon, Lake Country. We're in Appleton, downtown in the Fister. And then if you can hear WTMJ with this big signal, we can deal with you using screen share technology. You can skip the office entirely. It's called Annex Everywhere. We make it easy. Again, AnnexWealth.com. 1040, this is Money Talk. Annex Wealth Management, WTMJ. A Barron's top advisor, a member of the Financial Times Top 300, and a Journal Sentinel Top Workplace. Know the difference. This is Money Talk on WTMJ. Know the difference. It is Team Tech Trust, Annex Wealth Management. Hey, Randy Winkler, Manager of Financial Planning and CFP at Annex Wealth Management. How you doing? Good. How are you, Danny? Good. At the front end, when we talk about the free portfolio analysis, that's what your team does. That's a big part of what we do. We take a look at where you sit right now, snapshots, and then make some recommendations on what could be improved upon, what looks great, what's a disaster, and then we can go back with the advisor who can relay that information. This team segment is talking about common mistakes in retirement, and as a manager of financial planning, I'm sure that you've seen these. I'm also curious to see what you think about these. The first one we're going to talk about is when people assume that Social Security will be enough to retire, how often do you see it? With the people that we typically work with, we don't see that as much, but in the general population and probably a lot of our listeners, we see that a lot more often. People think that, oh, Social Security is going to replace my income. It's going to replace a fraction of it. The assumption is about a third. It's not really a great plan to just say, oh, Social Security will take care of me. In the old days, they talked about the three-legged stool. There was your Social Security, there's your personal savings, and there was pensions. A lot of people don't have pensions anymore, so you have to make up the difference with your personal savings. People that don't do that are relying on only two legs, one of them which is going to be kind of stubby. And Social Security can be fairly complicated. If you wait until what's called your full retirement age, you get your maximum benefit. But if you take it years early, you get a reduced benefit. If you take it a few years later, you get enhanced benefit. There can be different strategies on when to take it. Talking about common mistakes in retirement, the next one is not signing up for Medicare on time. I didn't know this was as big a deal as it is. It can be. There's a couple of things to keep in mind with Medicare. If you file at 65, when most people start, you're automatically enrolled. There's no underwriting. They're going to take you regardless of your health conditions. If you wait, there's a couple of things. First of all, there will be underwriting. You can be turned down. And there's also a penalty. So for every year that you wait to enroll in Part B, they charge you a 10% premium penalty. So it can get fairly expensive if you don't take it right on time. Now, there are good reasons not to take it, but you need to factor in the possible uh, negative ram uh, ramifications of that. But at least sign up on time. Well, at least have a conversation with somebody who really understands Medicare to make sure that that's the right thing to do. There are reasons not to, but you need to explore those and know what you're giving up or what could happen. And for sure, that's something that Annex Wealth Management covers with all of our clients. Yes, we've got a Medicare expert on staff. There we go. All right, next one, failing to take RMDs on time. This is interesting. RMD is a required minimum distribution. That's correct. The big danger with the RMD, if you don't take it, there's a 50% penalty. The government has a formula associated with how much you need to take. If you don't take that, whatever amount you don't take, they charge you 50%, and then you still need to take that required minimum distribution. So you definitely do not want to miss that. It's the biggest penalty out there. I, all I heard was 50%. That yep. hurts. Yep, it's painful. I worked with somebody a number of years ago at a very large IRA. He had a $50,000 required minimum distribution, which is it's pretty big. He didn't want to take it because he didn't. He said, I don't need the money. And I'm like, hey, it's not my rule. I'm not telling you you have to take it. I'm not telling you 
have to spend it. The government saying you have to take it out and pay taxes. Didn't want to do it until I told him, well, it's going to cost you $25,000 in penalty, and you're still going to have to take the $50,000. He, he, Where do I sign? Right. He, he moved on that pretty quickly at that point. And you've got the whole calendar year. Is there a better time during the year? It depends on your intention for the RMD. I just had this conversation with a client last week. If you are planning on just reinvesting the money, if you're going to take it out of your IRA, pay the taxes and reinvest it, it doesn't really matter because if the market's high, you're selling high and you're buying high. If the market's low, you're selling low and buying low. If you're taking it out for some particular need, you might want to schedule it at different times in the year. We see a lot of people, they take an RMD out in December to pay for Christmas presents, or they take it out in June or July for some sort of an insurance premium. Some people take it out every month. They take the annual amount and, and divide it by 12. So it's it's more important than you do it than any sort of strategy around how you do it. Do you know people that set up uh, an automatic? Yeah, and that's a great way to do it because you don't want to forget about it. Um, if you're working with a firm like ours, there's going to be somebody that's going to be walking you through that. But some people don't work with an advisor or they've got accounts at multiple places. That's where we see a lot of mistakes. I've got my IRA at XYZ Company and I've got another IRA over at ABC and you only take an RMD for one. You know, that doesn't work. I'm with Randy Winkler, Manager of Financial Planning and Annex Wealth Management, discussing common mistakes in retirement. This next one's a big one, underestimating the cost of health care. That's tricky. That is really a big one. We see a lot of people that have sticker shock when we start talking about that. Two different phases of that, people that retire at 65 or around there, they're surprised at how much Medicare actually costs when you factor in the premiums and the deductibles and coinsurance and things of that nature. Even more so as people that retire early, when they say, hey, I want to retire at 60, well, now you've got five years where you need to have bridge health care to cover that, that can be a big chunk of change. Next up is not factoring long-term care into your plan. When should people start thinking about that? That's a very good question. You're depending on who you talk to, uh, you're going to hear different numbers. If you talk to someone who sells long-term care insurance, they probably say there is no, you're never, it's never too early to start talking about it. Generally, I think uh, I'd like to start talking to people about it at probably age 50 and then really getting serious about it in the mid fifties, depending on the type that you get. And there's many different types. If you get it younger, you're likely to be healthier. You're going to have a lower premium, but you're paying it for a longer time. If you wait till later, you're going to have a higher premium. You're paying for a shorter time. But the big concern is if you become uninsurable, you can't get it. So you don't want to say, hey, I'm going to wait till I'm 80. And you know, now that I see something on the horizon, maybe I should look into this type of insurance. It's a concern because there's so few people that have it. I think I heard like 6 or 7% of the people out there actually have long-term care. And 50 to 60% will have a need for it. Common mistakes in retirement. Our final is not having a withdrawal strategy. Yeah, so withdrawal strategy is very important, very close to my heart because it's something that, that we do all the time. So if you think about your life, you've got a couple of different stages. And from a financial standpoint, you've got the accumulation stage while you're building the mountain. And then you've got the distribution stage where you're, you're tearing down the mountain. So the distribution stage is much more interesting. You might say complicated, depending on how you look at it. But to do it right, you know, because you can take the money from different places and taxes become a big factor. So if you take the money out of your IRA, it's 100% taxes income. Take it out of your Roth, it's not taxed at all. Take it out of your non-qualified accounts, you're going to pay capital gains perhaps. So coming up with the best strategy to take money out of the different places to maximize the tax bracket so you're not paying more taxes. We don't take advantage of the tax code. So that becomes very important and very interesting and changes from year to year. And that's why it's important to work with somebody on your distribution strategy. And Annex Wealth Management helps our clients on all of that. It's one of our specialties. Randy Winkler, Manager, Financial Planning and CFP, Annex Wealth Management. Good to see you again. Thanks for coming in.
great to be here, Danny. Hey, you got this far. Let us get you across the finish line. You can start today at AnnexWealth.com. Just click that Get Started button. You can also text Get Started to our main number at 262-786-6363. That is a really easy and quick way to get started. This is Money Talk, 1051 WTMJ. Team Tech trust and a fee-only fiduciary model that works in your best interest can your advisor say that this is money talk on wtmj saturday july 27th this is money talk annex wealth management a 2019 financial times 300 top registered investment advisors i'm the marketing guy so i i'm i believe that we should mention that a little bit more because that is something well i do think it's important for people to know that you know there are independent third parties out there, whether that's the SEC or the state of Wisconsin, or in this case, Barron's or Financial Times, that do take an independent look at some of the people that are in the marketplace. It validates, and we're humbled by it. I mean, it's really a testament to our clients and relationships that we've built with them. But the idea that there are other people out there saying nice things about us has, has really been uh, really humbling and, and very crediting. So, Derek, you know, we always start the show with a week in review. We try to close with something of a look forward. And I think maybe, you know, you said July 27th, Danny, and it really you know shook me a little bit because I'm like, we're at the end of July already, my goodness. But there are five important months left here in the year and kind of looking into the second half. What should people be thinking about looking into the second half of the year? What can we expect in the markets for the balance of 2019? Well, I think what we can expect is not to see a repeat of, of what we've seen so far this year. I and mean, while we would still believe that stocks are a better value than fixed income and have further room to run, I think we need to start thinking about rougher seas ahead. And what, what I mean by that is, you know, as the stock market has advanced, as unemployment has fallen, the Fed has pivoted, so they're now more accommodative. You know, we're getting later and later in this cycle. We're, we're at a record level of expansion for GDP since 2009. So we're going to have to watch and see our corporate profit margins starting to narrow is credit less bid for than it had been in the past or inflationary pressures building and the like. So it's at times like this where you really have to reallocate and consider what you own tactically. The other thing, of course, next week is you do have the Fed meeting, the FOMC meeting, and I think that that impacts a lot of what we're talking about right now, whether it's 25 basis points, no cut at all, or 50 basis points. And then what happens, of course, at the September-October meeting and what happens at the December meeting? So does the Fed now take a cut and then take a pause? So a lot of those things will impact that as well. Yeah, and the important thing is I think they've reduced the risk of a recession either this year or in 2020. And also, you know, sort of tantamount to what I was talking about earlier, you also, in this environment, want to find companies that pay dividends but have manageable debt loads. What you see is with rates this low, you know, the culture in the United States has been, okay, rates are low, let's borrow the money, let's buy back stock, let's do M&A, let's raise our dividends and the like. But there are differences between companies in various sectors. For example, in the automotive sector, Demler-Benz pays 7.5% dividend yield, and it's an A credit rating, right? So they have a really great balance sheet, whereas Ford Motor Company pays a lower yield but is a triple be credit. Now, what would happen if the economy were to slow? Well, guess who's going to cut their dividend first? It would be Ford Motor. So you want to kind of edge your portfolio towards higher quality dividend paying companies that have outstanding free cash flow yields, which is essentially what we do with our equity income strategy. It is, and I think a lot of people forget dividends as a part of overall return. I think people look at what's the price of the stock on January 1st, what's the price of the stock on December 31st, and that is the performance of that stock for the year. You 
forget about dividends. It's a big part of investing and investing returns. Yeah, and I think one other thing we ought to look at, look for in 2019 is U.S. stocks have outperformed for 10 years. Now, I understand the flows to U.S. equities haven't been what they have been to international, and I think there are probably some advisors recently have probably given up the ship on overseas diversification. But again, valuation disparities, sector disparities exist. Uh, the buyback culture that I mentioned in the U.S. has not occurred in Europe, which suggests maybe perhaps it will ultimately. But basically, the valuations overseas are pretty compelling, and those those markets have held up reasonably well, and they ought to do even better if the dollar were to start to weaken. What about fixed income? I think that's the other part of most people's portfolio. Certainly people who are seniors have more fixed income in their portfolio. What can people look forward to for fixed income bonds, bond-like investments for the balance of 2019? Well, one thing that's kind of interesting is Morningstar recently reclassified what they call a core bond allocation. They basically used to just lump all core multi-sector bonds into one category, but they've differentiated them, and they now have a core bond category and a core plus category. The difference being a core plus bond is one that has over 5% in high-yield bonds, which have more equity beta in them than general bonds do, so they're not as good diversifiers versus equity market risk. So I think you want to look at what your credit allocation is within fixed income. Are you exposed to bank loans, high-yield bonds, and the like? Because at some point when this, this economic recovery slows, or perhaps we do ultimately have a recession, high-yield bonds might have a really rough time. That's it for Money Talk this week. Get started. Just go to AnnexWealth.com. Look for the Get Started button. We will see you in a week. It's WTMJ at 1059. Advice and opinions expressed during Money Talk are solely that of the hosts or guests of Annex Wealth Management and not WTMJ Radio or Good Karma Brands Milwaukee, LLC.